Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Acts of the Apostles, the first chapter where we will be looking together. I'm going to change it a little bit. I know I said one through five. We'll, we'll actually be looking together at verses one through three. Acts chapter one, one through three. You can find that passage on page 1069 in your pew Bibles. Well, allow me here at the outset to just take a, a brief moment this morning and once again thank you all and thank the consistory of our church for the sabbatical that I have been blessed to have been on this last three months. I don't want to go into it too much, but I spent that time seeking the face of the Lord on a number of issues and I stand before you this morning not only extremely grateful for that time, but also very, very eager to get back to preaching the Word of God. I will admit that I thoroughly enjoyed sitting under the preaching of Pastor Joe Hilrich at Covenant Church in Perrysburg, Ohio, where I was attending the last three months. My spirit was ministered to greatly by Joe, and he and I, I think, have become very good friends and will remain so for years to come. However, as good as the preaching was, as good as the time together was, I have greatly missed being in this pulpit and feel more than ever that it is where I truly belong. And I'm eager, not only after what was a very necessary break, but eager because of the direction that we have decided to go in beginning a new series this morning, preaching through the book of Acts. Hopefully you were able to Get your hands on a, a copy. I know Jason held it up. Uh, this is something something new. It's not to scare anybody. It's simply uh, the scripture text on one side with plenty of room to make notes and, and thoughts and that kind of thing to write down there. We wanted to make that available to everybody. And uh, hopefully you will take uh, advantage of that. So I'd like to begin our dive into this book of Acts that I have come to believe truly is a pivotal, pivotal and crucial book for you and I to fully understand and joyfully living the Christian life. Beloved, it's certainly always my hope that you will come to see that as well for yourself in the weeks to come. So let's just briefly look at a little bit of the background of this book at the outset of this series this morning. You might be surprised to learn that the book of Acts is one of the longest books of the New Testament, containing 1,003 verses, which places it just shy of only Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts. Its comparative length speaks to its central importance in the New Testament, and really I would say, in the canon of sacred scripture as a whole. It's commonly believed and accepted that it was written, of course, by Luke, the beloved physician of the gospel according to Luke. Though he does not name himself as its author within the scope of the work itself, there are, of course, many reasons for you and I to immediately associate it with him. For example, the many we statements that we are going to talk about in this book that are made within the text itself certainly point to Luke historically as being the one who was involved in those instances. 
Perhaps the greatest reason, I will tell you, is its relationship to the gospel according to Luke itself. Chapter 1 of Luke, he states that he is setting out to bring clarity and understanding to a most excellent Theophilus regarding the things that he had been instructed on concerning the fulfillment that Jesus Christ brought to so many of the ancient prophecies. He begins Acts in much the same way. Though now moving on to the work of the resurrected Christ, the King, and all things concerning his kingdom. Really, it would appear that the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is really book two in a two-volume work. Book one being the gospel bearing Luke's name. Luke is, of course, not only a physician, but a very good historian as well. Though we will not be diving into all of the technical, particular types of historical narrative, I think most would agree that it certainly belongs somewhere in that genre of scripture, historical narrative. As to the date of the writing of Acts, there has been a lot of debate over, the, over that particular topic in the church throughout its storied history. I know that the copies of the books of Acts that we handed out to you this morning place its writing sometime between 33 AD and 62 AD. I want to tell you, I think that's a little bit early uh, for the book of Acts. Again, I want to avoid getting too far into the weeds on that debate. I've, I've read many of those differing opinions regarding it over the last several months, and I would say that it was probably written sometime between AD 62 and AD 70. Although the, although Ultimately, it is the message of Acts that I believe is the most important thing for you and I to wrestle with and to fully grasp. And so that is where I fully expect to spend our time in the foreseeable future. One other debate that will be somewhat, I think, unavoidable for any serious study of this book has to do with the purpose of its writing. Many believe that the primary focus of the Acts of the Apostles is that of the church and how the church is supposed to function post-ascension. So under that view, if you hear the Acts of the Apostles, you will begin to look at what these men, the Apostles themselves, were doing in carrying out the work of Jesus Christ on earth in his physical absence. And though there's certainly merit to that, as well as some real value in that truth for us, I feel that it still falls short of capturing the full glory here in this book of Acts. Though certainly we will be made aware of how God was working in and through these men. Another mistake would be to look at this book as simply laying out for us a practical guide to missions in light of the Great Commission being carried out first with these apostles, continuing on with the church today until Jesus comes again in glory. Again, there's much truth in that view. Missions is an unavoidable, very 
necessary subject in this book. And for very good reason. This is the church in the first century being used mightily by Almighty God to spread the, the good news of the gospel, namely that salvation has come to all peoples in and through the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will spend time in this series seeing the way that Almighty God used men like Peter, like the Apostle Paul, to do just that. However, though, beloved, I would caution anyone away from believing that missions is the primary purpose of this book. Or I should say believing it's the sole purpose of this book because it is so much more. Beloved, I told you that I truly believe that what is front and center in the book of Acts, though it contains elements of all of those things, is so much bigger than those things. It is Almighty God Himself that is at the center of the book of Acts. It is His sovereignty that is on display. It is His wisdom, His power, his grace, his deep and abiding love of his church. It is his work that is manifested in the book of Acts. And what Luke is describing here in, his ex in this explanation, really of all of the scriptures together, goes well beyond the work of mere men in its purpose. Men carry out the work of the kingdom through the wisdom of power, and grace of Almighty God, but ultimately that work is God's. If I had to break it down even further, I would say that what we are looking at in the Acts of the Apostles really is the reign of the risen King. Luke will pick up where Book 1, the, the Gospel according to Luke, left off. I would encourage all of you at the outset this morning to spend some time in the weeks coming to read through the Gospel of Luke on your own, in your own time, in your own personal study of the Word of God in preparation for this series. Because Acts will certainly flow directly out of Luke. This morning we're going to be looking together at what really is only the prologue of this work in these first three verses. And though our look will not be exhaustive by any means, it is my hope to stir up our hearts and minds to consider the full weight of what is truly transpiring here. And in doing so, in this introductory sermon, it's my hope to bring at least some clarity to three truly important questions that I think are being answered here by Luke in this prologue at the outset of his work. First, we're going to look at we're going to look to answer why it was that Luke penned this book. Why book two? Why not end it at book one? What was his purpose? Secondly, I want to look at how that purpose was, is being, and will be accomplished. And finally, I want us to see very clearly what all of this means for us, for you and I living at this time, in this place during this point in redemptive history. Beloved, as always, it is my sincere hope for all of us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his wonderful gospel at the very center of all of you. 
let's look now together at the opening verses of the Acts of the Apostles. Again, reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of our Lord. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is the word of God, and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come and to feed upon your word. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit this morning, that we would hear these things, understand these things, and live our lives in light of these things. May we be transformed by the wonderful truth of the gospel, so that we might live more and more for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Well, we see here almost immediately that Luke is addressing this explanation once again to a man whose name was Theophilus. In Luke chapter 1, he refers to this same man as most excellent Theophilus, which tells us more than likely that this man was probably a man of some rank within the society in which they found themselves in. I do not want to spend too much time on rabbit trails this morning, but I do think it's worth pointing out to you just a quick etymology of this man's name. You probably recognize two well-known Greek words that are sort of pressed together in that name, right? First one, theo or theos, right, meaning God. The second one maybe is not recognizable. I, I know I have talked about it before. Uh, in my sermons, phileo is one of the words that scripture, scripture uses uh, to define love. It's familiar to us. It's in the word Philadelphia, which again is a smashing of two great words. Phileo, love, adelphoi meaning brethren. It's why we call the city of Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. Theophilus, then, would mean one loved by God or a lover of God. So Luke is writing to this man, Theophilus, and his intent in doing so seems to be very clear here at the outset. He's writing on the heels of his first book, book one, if you will, the gospel according to Luke, and he's picking up precisely where he left off. Look at what he says. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until that day when he was taken up. He is writing to continue the gospel where he had left off. Luke's desire is to write an accurate account of all that had taken place from the time of Jesus' ascension in glory up into heaven. And beloved, I want for us to see something here. Luke is presenting to Theophilus. He's presenting to the church of Jesus Christ in the first century. He's presenting to us 
the full counsel of the Word of God. Do you see that this morning? This is much more than just a historical narrative. Luke is aiming to do much more than just spin a yarn or tell a good story. He is presenting the full counsel of God in his word. And do you know what I mean by that? Let me put it this way. Luke is connecting the dots, if you will, of the full picture of redemptive history. You understand, this is much more than just a legend. This is much more than just a tale of a peculiar man that was known as Jesus of Nazareth. This is a piecing together of God's great work of redemption throughout the history of God's people. And Luke knows that he is writing these things down as one who is standing on the very brink, on the very edge of the beginning of another great epoch of redemptive history. So we must think through his former account, which detail the life and times of Jesus Christ up until the point of his resurrection. And I don't want us to have to flip back and forth a bunch, but Luke tells us his purpose in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And he says this thing. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them, to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So, his mission in the Gospel according to Luke it's very clear, isn't it? He is connecting the dots of redemptive history in order to bring Theophilus, to bring the church, to bring you and I to a full understanding of the great work of Almighty God in our redemption from the very beginning of it. Now I want you to understand when I say the very beginning, I'm not talking about the very beginning of the gospel of Luke talking about going all the way back to the Garden of Eden where we first hear the promise of a Redeemer, a Deliverer, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And Luke is saying, look, this is him. This is him. He has come. He has lived. He was perfect. He was sinless. He went and he stood in our place. He received upon himself our punishment for our sin. And he spends the next 24 chapters in Luke proving it. This is the culmination of God's promise. This Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. 
He has come with salvation in his wings. God has shown us that it truly is him. And here in Acts, picking up that same narrative, post-resurrection, Luke is standing at the edge again, as I said, of the next great epoch in redemptive history. Do you understand why I say that? Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been resurrected. In the Gospel of Luke, we have witnessed his birth, his blameless life, his miraculous power, his authoritative teaching, his willingly walking into the arms of death for those whom he came to save. And we have witnessed the finality of that work upon the cross where Jesus himself, the Son of God, declared that the work of redemption was indeed finished. The debt was paid. The sacrifice was made. We have seen his glorious resurrection, his victory, his triumph over sin, death, and the devil. And Luke has once again picked up his quill to say, Oh, Theophilus, wait until you see what comes next. We are standing this morning at the edge of the earthly work of Jesus Christ. Standing at the brink of the ascension of Jesus to his throne, where he will reign until he comes again. We are standing here at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles on the brink of what has already happened and what is still yet to come. Just as an aside, as a convinced amillennialist, I can't miss the opportunity here to express the way this fits within that system of eschatology that we refer to as amillennialism. This is the ushering in of the millennial reign of Christ. Ruling, reigning in heaven while his work continues here on earth until he comes again to bring a new heavens and a new earth. Do you see why I would say this truly is a pivot point, if you will, in redemptive history? I'm not looking to spark debate about eschatology, if you disagree with me, we don't have to talk about it, it's fine. I trust that you can see what I'm saying here. The purpose of this book, the Acts of the Apostles, is very clear. It is to showcase the sovereignty of Almighty God over all of these things. It is to see the reign of King Jesus from his heavenly throne. It is to fill us with such Gratitude for such an amazing, comprehensive salvation as the one that we've been given in Him. So let us look now at the second question. How are these things brought into life? That's the second question for us to consider. How are these things brought into the light for us here in the opening verses of the book of Acts? Look at what Luke says, picking up where we left off, midway through verse 2. After he through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. 
being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. First off, we do see God's sovereignty here, right? Do you hear it in the language? It was he, through the Holy Spirit, that gave commands to these men to preach the gospel, to show the church the Lord Jesus Christ, taking him, as it were, to the nations, to the ends of the earth. It was also he that chose these men and equipped these men for that work. This was not the, the, the formation of an apostle search committee. It was the sovereign God of the universe accomplishing his perfect, glorious work through the undeserving lives of fallen image bearers. It was he that set about convincing these men of both heart and mind, that this was indeed the long-awaited Messiah accomplishing their redemption. It was he that presented himself to them for 40 days after being raised from the dead, preparing them by disclosing the glories of his kingdom and the full scope of its work. And Luke tells us he did that by many infallible proofs. You know what infallible proofs are? They are proofs that cannot fail. They're actually unable to fail. They cannot fail to convince these men that indeed Jesus Christ, though they witnessed his death, though they were there in his burial, was still very much alive. Though we cannot possibly know the full content of the teaching of the resurrected Christ during those 40 days, we certainly can see the fruit of the glory. These men, though weak, though documented failures at times, all of them, though often portrayed as very much afraid and confused up to this point in their ministry, these men were used by God to change the world. These men, through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of his glorious spirit, went on and subdued kings and kingdoms. These men were used by Almighty God to build his church. And I want you to hear me, beloved. These weak men, these imperfect men, these sinners, they became willing servants of the risen and reigning king. Though afraid, they became co-sufferers with their Lord. Jesus told them that they would. The master suffered and so would his servants. Those who were living in the reality of the already accomplished salvation and the not yet realized new heavens and earth though still living in the brokenness of the curse. They were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. However, even in the face of horrific suffering, in the face of the terror of death itself, I want you to see that these men could not become unconvinced of these things. They could not just turn away from what they knew in their hearts and minds by the grace of God through infallible proof. These men would cling to King Jesus. 
These men were being instructed by the resurrected Christ to interpret all things Christologically. We need to see that. That is, they were seeing that Jesus Christ and the good news of his gospel really was, indeed really is, at the center of all revelation. He truly is the wisdom of God. All wisdom is in him and through him. And Luke, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, knows it. He's been proclaiming it from the very beginning of his first book. It's the beautiful point he makes in Luke 24, beginning with verse 13, with, his with this encounter, strange encounter of the resurrected Jesus with two of his disciples or his followers on the road to Emmaus. I know it's a lengthy passage, but we need to see this and understand this and embrace this truth as we embark on this journey through the Acts of the Apostles. Because really, I want you to see, beloved, this is the answer to the question. How can we understand these things? These events in redemptive history. Beginning with verse 13 of Luke 24, I want you to listen. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What then? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth was a mighty prophet, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers, our rulers, delivered him to be condemned to death, crucified. And we were hoping that it was he that was going to redeem this man. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they also had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said they did not see him. And then he said to them, how foolish was Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. This is key. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Love, do you see? The apostles were being taught how to now live 
in this epoch of redemptive history, how to live in this time of tension and strain as servants of the great risen reigning king of kings. To live between the already and the not yet. We must understand like the apostles that though Jesus is not physically present with us, he has certainly equipped us with his spirit and his power to continue his work in the here and now despite the brokenness that I know we all know too well. Despite the brokenness that still exists during this time, it will continue to exist until Jesus comes again. We are called to serve and to suffer for our reigning and sovereign King, knowing that His grace indeed is sufficient for us because He said it was sufficient for us. We must come to terms with these things. We must be convinced through the gracious gift of faith of the infallible proofs of his resurrection and his ascension to his throne. We must come to grips with the purpose standing behind all of it in order to live in this difficult life joyfully before the face of our King and Redeemer and Lord. Do you see? Jesus graciously opened the eyes of understanding for his disciples by showing them himself at the epicenter of all of it. And all the scriptures, beginning with Moses and the prophets, up until that very day on the road to him, until that day that Luke is about to show us when the Christ will ascend to his throne and send the promised Holy Spirit to open the stony hearts and to clear the foggy minds of his glorious bride to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wonderful redemption that is ours in union with him by faith. And I'm asking you this morning, beloved, do you see it? This is so much more than just a history of the first century church. This is life itself. This is life in Jesus Christ, the risen and the reigning King. This is eternal life and Jesus truly does it all. Surely you see that, right? This is not a picture of Jesus accomplishing your salvation, now waiting, fretting nervously over the possibility that you may never get it right. This is not a picture that so many hold today of Jesus giving you salvation so that you can look better in Adam. No, beloved, this is a picture of a king who has done everything for us. He accomplishes our salvation. He sends his glorious spirit to open up our eyes to allow us to see him at the center of all of it. He equips us for the work that he himself has ordained from the foundations of the earth. He keeps us. He preserves us. He 
preserves us in that knowledge and wisdom until he comes again in glory to bring finality to all things and usher in the new heaven and earth where sin will be no more. Even imagine. It's coming. I hope it causes joy to swell up within you from deep down this morning because this stuff is really what we need and it's all we'll ever need. Which leads us to our final question this morning. And I believe it's answered just in this prologue of this wonderful book that we are only beginning to dive into. We have seen this morning why it is that Luke is picking up the quill once again to follow his gospel account and move forward and helping Theophilus, helping us for that matter, to understand these things. It's also clear here how God is accomplishing that purpose. He's instructing his Apostles and understanding the scriptures, indeed, understanding all things Christologically, with Christ at the center. Jesus is the center of all revelation. He's the fulfillment of the precious promises of God. He and His mercy is opening our eyes to who He is through His Spirit, filling us with faith to embrace Jesus Christ and His gospel as the central truth in all of our. We are dependent upon him, he alone, and we trust him to accomplish all that is promised in the word of God. So now we must ask the question again at the outset of this journey, what help is it to me to know these things? You know, this really is a lot of verses to go through. Did you remember? I said a thousand and three verses. That's a lot. I mean, it's a history book. We really need to invest that kind of time and effort into historical narrative. My hope, beloved, is that you already see, or perhaps you will see, that this book, though it does give us a very rich, detailed account of the work of the first century church, is so much more than just history. I hope that the prologue alone convinces you of the already, convinces you of that already, and we have but just barely skimmed its depths this morning. But we need to answer that question. What benefit is there in our study of this book? Well, first, it is a comfort for the weary pilgrim making his or her way through this difficult tension that we live in between the already and the not yet of the reign of our risen king. Surely you've made that deduction yourself this morning. So we need to apply it. I'm asking you, look, is your life tough this morning? Is it hard? Are you suffering? Perhaps your job is more stressful than anyone knows. Your future employment is always dangling on a string. Maybe you've come to taste firsthand the brokenness that so often invades our marriages, our families, our relationships. Perhaps you have never felt the sting of loneliness the way that you feel it even this morning as you sit in the house of God barely able to look up and even go through the motions of worship. Perhaps you're scared, afraid. You see changes on the horizon, ones that you were not anticipating or desiring, even ones that perhaps you have been dreading. Brokenness 
the result of sin and the curse is all around you, and you find yourself this morning wondering if the Bible could ever really offer you comfort amid so much pain and so much disappointment. I want you to listen to the words of the Lord and the Acts of the Apostle. And I want for you to witness King Jesus manifested from his throne freely, graciously giving and equipping his church with everything you could possibly need. He's done away with your curse if you belong to him. He's already paid the price. His sacrificial and atoning death have rendered the curse impotent for you if you truly are in him. Maybe your struggle this morning is with assurance, confidence in faith. Jesus, the resurrected and risen Lord, is on his throne. He is your advocate in heaven with the Father, sanctifying all that you do, all that you say, even all that you think. He has given his followers infallible proofs of his victory over sin, death, and the devil. He even supplies his spirit. For your own full understanding and conviction of all of these things. And he's done it all. He's paid it all. That's what we sing, right? Yours is now a calling. Living like you believe this stuff. Living joyfully before the Lord, trusting in him to save, preserve, keep, fill, teach, and eventually glorify. Yours is no longer a life of fear. Yes, we all stumble. Yes, we will doubt. Yes, at times we will give in to fear and we will suffer at its grisly hands. But we are His. We have been purchased. We belong to the King. I want you to understand, He's not a potential this is not a worldly prince that may or may not come to power so that we could place our hope in him eventually. Now, beloved, this is the triumphant, risen, reigning king of kings who now, right now, from his throne will lead his church to himself in glory. So our future's never in doubt. Not if you belong to him. And we will see how he works in and through his people here. Jesus tells his apostles after 40 days of proof to remain in Jerusalem because there they will receive the promised spirit of God for these things. And by the grace of God, they wait. They stay. And the result of that faith will be before us for many many weeks to come. I trust that you will join me as we ourselves are equipped by his grace through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ for all of these things. Amen? Let's pray.